teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are so thrilled that you're here with us this afternoon. Actually, it could be any time of day for you, but for us, it's afternoon. <laughs> Melissa and I are extremely excited to have Kristen McQuillan, TNTP director, and Reagan Kelly, TNTP partner, with us today. They are going to talk about how TNTP's opportunity myth um, connects to how adopting a high quality curriculum impacts achievement. And we know that we've talked about TNTP's opportunity myth in the past and the four outcomes of their study. So we're really going to highlight those today and dive into what makes a successful implementation and what this means for leaders and teachers. So if you have a moment before I grab Melissa into the conversation, please go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Give us a five-star review. It means a whole lot to us, and it means a lot for how other educators can find us in the podcast world. So please be sure to do that before our podcast starts today or while you're listening to this introduction to this amazing podcast that you are about to jump into. So Melissa, um, how I'm great. are you? How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm like loved, loved listening to Kristen and Reagan talk. And I loved meeting Reagan um, the other night at Natalie Wexler's um, book. What is it? Book review? Yeah. Book reading? <laughs> book reading without a book reading. <laughs> book reading. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, Melissa and I have worked with Kristen um, in the past, for those of you listening, we were colleagues. And uh, so we got to meet Regan the other night and she is wonderful too. So we can't wait for you to um, jump into this podcast with us. But first, Melissa, will you share with us the TNTP opportunity myth, um, the four outcomes that Absolutely. we're going to dive into yeah, today? Yeah. And I think <laughs> what's really, I think, interesting about the work that Kristen and Regan do is that, you know, they're not a curriculum company trying to sell a curriculum. Um, but yes. part of the opportunity myth is that first one is great appropriate assignments, which is why there's such a push right now for this high quality curriculum, right? That's why we in Baltimore adopted Wit and Wisdom and other people are adopting other great curricula out there as well. Um, uh-huh. But then there's more work to do. And I think that's where Kristen and Reagan are really going to jump in today talking about the other three things from the opportunity myth, deep engagement high expectations from teachers, and strong instruction requiring that students do most of the thinking. And to get those things happening, it's, you know, it's not written in the manual <laughs> for, for wit and wisdom, right? <laughs> so, you know, we no. really do need to think about professional development for teachers, coaching for teachers, shifting the mindsets of teachers, and how all of that happens. And so I'm really excited to talk to Kristen and Reagan about that today. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things um, that as you were talking, it made me think about for those who are listening, um, if you don't know, we keep saying high quality curriculum. And I don't know, Melissa, that we've ever defined it or like aligned curriculum. We've used that now in like 12 podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know that people listening know what that is. Um, So I I just want to say like you could head on to Ed Reports and 
go to the compare materials tab and you can see different headings for ELA K2, ELA 3A, ELA high school. And what you want to look for are those that have lots Mm -hmm. of green. (laughs) Green is good. Yeah. Um, So that's really, really important because it means that it met the highest ratings for text quality, building knowledge, alignment rating, and usability rating. So those are really important things to look at if you're curious and you have a few minutes. Um, It's just, it's a great resource. Um, And, you know, anything that we are saying as high quality or aligned curricula would be like Melissa, you would agree, like all yeah. green on Edward, Edward Port, Absolutely. Or, all yeah. green. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't think we're accepting anything less than all green, but I wanted to confirm with you before. <laughs> before For sure. Yeah. All right. But, so yeah, let's get to the interview right, with let's Kristen talk and to them. Um, Kristen, I'm going to have you start. Would you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Kristen McQuillan. I also live here in Baltimore, and I worked for a little over 12 years at Baltimore City Public Schools in a variety of roles as a teacher, as a literacy coach, and um, eventually as an administrator. Um, And so I like to call myself a Baltimore City School super fan. Um, My son just started kindergarten in Baltimore City Schools, so um, I'm hugely invested in Baltimore, which is part of the reason that I love your podcast. Um, I've listened to every episode, <laughs> so I'm Yay. so excited when you invited me to join. And now I work as a director at TNTP, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Um, but we're an organization that partners with school districts, with state departments of education, charter management organizations, and we partner to help those districts and those school organizations reach their goals for students. And we focus a lot on educational equity. So we're excited to talk to you about it today, and thanks again for having me. Thank you, Kristen. We're excited you're here. (laughs) Reagan, would you take a moment and just share with us a little bit about Um, you? I'm Reagan Kelly. I'm a partner at TNTP. I get the pleasure of working with Kristen. Uh, I live in Maryland as well, just outside of the D.C., and uh, I've been in education for 20 years. I started um, as a classroom teacher for many years in Southern California, um, and I feel like that's where I got my literacy foundation. I cut my teeth on open court reading, which is a old um, basil that uh, I think in a lot of ways set the standard for strong, explicit systematic phonics programs. Um, mm-hmm. Is certainly the bar, which against I hold every other phonics program I've seen since. Um, and I've been really passionate about Reagan, literacy I did ever too. since. And uh, <laughs> I now get the pleasure of leading a team who do a lot of work in curriculum implementation strategy and literacy improvement for students um, across the country. Awesome. Reagan, I used open court too when I first started teaching. Oh, it's amazing. I just, I could go on for days. That's a different podcast story. We will talk about foundational skills at some point, as well as connecting it to a high quality core curriculum. Yes. So when we come back to you that, let me know. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you another Great. call. Awesome. Um, so Melissa and I have talked about TNTP's Opportunity Myth very frequently in our podcast. Um, We're always using it as a source of research, uh, current and compelling research for the topics that we discuss. And so we'd love to hear a little bit from you both um, about 
what you found compelling in that research and how that research connects or propels your everyday uh, work around supporting districts with implementing, you know, high quality curriculums so that all students can have equity and access. Yeah, absolutely. I can speak to that first a little bit, Reagan, if you want. Sure. Um, I was actually uh, still working in Baltimore City Schools uh, and, and getting ready to make the transition when the Opportunity Myth came out. And I think one of the things that's so compelling about the Opportunity Myth is that the story that it told is one that all of us who have worked in education are familiar with, right? So, um when I was working in Baltimore City Schools, I had the privilege of teaching one group of students for three years in a row. I looped with them from <laughs> sixth grade. Uh, I started with them in sixth, looped with them to seventh, looped with them again to eighth. So they were like my kids by the end of it. And um, I kept in touch with a lot of them. And, you know, one of my students in particular went away to college on a scholarship. And we kept in touch. And she kind of had this reckoning where she realized, like, I am not that well prepared for college. Um, and she would send me papers of hers to proofread and help her with. And I was just so perplexed because I was like, how is this student not prepared for college? She was so smart in my class. She was so hardworking. She was so dedicated. Like, and she was doing great work in middle school. And I just don't even see that much progress in her writing between when I had her and now she's in college. And it's not because she's not capable, right? And so it was really this, this seed that was planted in my mind at that time around like, what are the expectations that we hold for kids and what are the experiences that they're having? So I think first, when the opportunity myth told that story of like what kids want to do and what they're working hard for, um, but then they get to college or they get to their careers and they, they have this rude awakening that they haven't been as prepared um, and the call that it makes to all of us who work in education, because it's not just, you know, one teacher or one classroom or one school, like this is a systems issue that we have to address. Um, that was really compelling for me. And that's something that we hear a lot from our clients and from folks that we talk to that the, the story of that is very compelling because it's one that we all know. Kristen, that's an awesome point. Um, I think what stood out to me on what you just said is that it is a systems issue. And I love how you said it's not just one school, one classroom, one teacher. You're right. So when we're thinking about like this change that needs to happen so that you're, that student who came back to you could come back and say, you know, Ms. McCullen, I am prepared for college and here's how I know. And here, you know, I'm going to show you all the amazing work I've been doing. Um, how do we do that? Um, I know that we've talked about, um, you know, high quality curriculum adoption, but how does this impact achievement? Like in what ways does adopting a high quality curriculum impact achievement? I can speak a little to that. I think that one of the things we, we saw pretty clearly in the opportunity myth is that, you know, there really is no silver bullet around this, around the opportunities students are given and that there are these what we call these four resources that really impact both the students' daily experience in class, but also the outcomes that students are getting. And they are assignments, you know, rigorous aligned assignments. It's the quality of the instruction. It's the students' engagement. And it's the teacher and adult expectations for the students. And I think curriculum can, it, it has a really important role, but it's clearly not the, um, the only thing that's, that's influencing the, the outcomes for kids. 
so it can set that floor, right? And it can raise the bar. And in particular, it can get you in a place where kids are more consistently getting higher quality assignments, assuming that the curriculum contains such assignments. Uh, and the curriculum can have influence as in, on instruction, as I'm sure we all know. Um, but it isn't, it, it just isn't a silver, silver bullet. And we see this in the, in the, um, Kane study that came out, uh, earlier this year, uh, around the use of curriculum. And it was looking at math in particular, but this is one of the conclusions that was drawn there as well, is that, you know, just handing teachers different materials is not in and of itself going to change outcomes for kids. There's a lot of other pieces that go into the students' experience, the outcomes that they get, and, and the change that we're looking for. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> go ahead, Kristen. Yeah, Sorry. I was going to say, and, and as Reagan so brilliantly put it, like, if we just pull one lever, right, curriculum, because curriculum is a lever, we may see some increase in student achievement, right? Because they have higher quality, teachers have higher quality materials, students have higher quality instruction. But if we don't, you know, change the hearts and minds of uh, the folks who operate in the system around what we're actually trying to do, we won't see that deep change that we're really looking for, right? And so uh, that's why Reagan and I are so excited about the work that we get to do um, with educators around the country is that we really focus on that change management piece, right? Like we think about those adaptive changes that we need to make to not only realize the first uh, resource of the opportunity myth, which is grade level assignments, which is that curriculum piece, and trust and believe, I mean, that's a really important overhaul for districts, for schools to take on. But what we're saying is it's just the starting line, right? So like get that yeah. part right, but then you've got these other levers that you have to pull too. You know, how are we yeah. developing folks so that we can ensure strong instruction? How are we engaging our students, their parents, the communities that we work in so that we can have that deep engagement? And then perhaps in my mind, most importantly, how do we shift our expectations of what we think that children particularly color, students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, how do we shift our expectations and our mindsets around what we think that they can do, what we know that they can do, and the things that we'll ask them to do? Yeah. Can I just jump in real quick? With, I, before we, there's like so much to go with, like, what do we need to do? Um, but I just want, you know, we talk a lot in most of our podcasts about the importance of this high quality curriculum and the adoption and all the reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, just to like play a little devil's advocate, I'm wondering like how necessary is it for that first step? Like, could we just try and improve instruction and see similar changes to what you're talking about? Or is it really a necessary first step? And what do you, what are you guys thoughts on that? It's a great question. Um, I'm pretty, and maybe again, I, it, it might stem back from my own experience as a teacher myself where, you know, as frustrated as I could be with having a, a quote unquote scripted curriculum as an early teacher, my gosh, it was a lifesaver. Um, mm-hmm. And I, my sense is, and I don't have, you know, data and research to back this up, but my sense is that, yeah, there are a handful of teachers, um, you know, some small percentage of teachers who could do this really well without a super strong curriculum. I think it's a very, very small number of teachers who would have the, the time, frankly, and the capacity and the skill to do it. Um, so I think that the curriculum, again, it just, set, it, it raises the floor and allows teachers, I mean, it changes the natures of what we're asking teachers to do. Um, 
to something slightly different, which I think we are not talking about quite enough in the field. And, and I don't know if the ed prep programs have gotten that message quite yet. Um, but I, that's exactly what I was yeah. thinking, Reagan. I, so I was like taking notes as you were talking and I was like, ed prep, how yeah. many teachers have, yeah. have, I mean, I don't even think that teachers based on Emily Hanford's most recent mm-hmm. APM reports. And I'm not even saying, I don't even think we know. And I know based on my experience, I know based on experience that I've had in the field, based on the APM reports by Emily mm-hmm. Hanford, like teachers are not prepared to teach foundational no. skills, literacy, and, you know, based on their college education. Um, and then like to ask them to be curriculum right. writers on top yes. of that. And, and then when you think about uh, all the other things that go into that, like such as the vertical alignment from year to year, consistency, what standards actually look like, mm-hmm. um, you know, for each grade level, we could go on for days. It's nearly yeah. impossible. <laughs> yeah. It's nearly and impossible. And I would argue, it's an impossible. I would argue, Lori, too, yeah. that I think weirdly though the expectation from teacher prep usually is not that you will go out and have a curriculum to teach and how do you teach that well, but is that you are kind of starting from scratch and scratch. how do you write lessons from scratch? That's right. You'll have all map your standards. And freedom and That's right. Yeah. I <laughs> and remember so I that. And dri- there's, yeah. It drives me crazy. Definitely um, yeah. Actually. Yeah. Last year, last year, um, I had an experience where I had a, a, a teacher, um, who was from a local university doing her student teaching in a school and the university was mandating that she rewrite the curriculum Mm -hmm. lessons Mm -hmm. to be her own. So instead of, you know, teaching her how to be a master implementer and exactly what we were doing around curriculum implementation, the lessons and the, and the assessments and everything was being rewritten. And when I looked at the level, I was gauging based on standards that, it was about three grade levels rewritten mm, below right. the actual grade level. And I just think we are doing such a disservice. Right. And Melissa, I feel like maybe we need to put in our notebook, like we need to follow up with higher yeah. ed and get them on the podcast. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Reagan, I think you bring up such an incredible point and one that yeah, yeah, I, I, has been weighing, you know, heavy on my heart for a long time, but it's just, I think, more coming to light yeah. lately. I mean, there's this great quote that I, I float around in PowerPoints and things over the years, and it's old. It's from like 2006, and this is pre even the standards that we're talking about now. And it describes, <laughs> you know, it says it's from Michael Fullen, who does a lot of like ed change theory. And it talks about, um, listen, there's nothing wrong with curriculum, obviously, assessment, um, standards, professional development, these are not the wrong things to do, but they are in, they are incomplete in and of themselves as a theory mm-hmm. of action. And if you are not getting, and I love this phrase, at the black box of instructional practice in the classroom, you aren't going to get the impact that you want. Um, and I just love that phrase. I mean, I keep threatening to put on a t-shirt. I haven't done it yet, but um, <laughs> oh, well, I, I know you, you have this, this uh, connection, so maybe I'll get you to help me. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you listening who don't know what we're talking about, we, uh, we went to Natalie Wexler's book, re- book release um, at a local bookstore, and I had shirts made for Melissa and I <laughs> that said, wild about Wexler. And everybody was like, you should have bought them, brought them to sell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, we, that's a, an incredible quote. Tell us, um, 
tell us how your reactions are when you have that in presentations. Like what are, what are people thinking when they see that? Um, I think that people do perceive, I mean, not everybody, but I think there is a sort of assumption that if curriculum isn't a silver bullet, it's at least most of the story or most of the, the work that needs to get done. And I think we see this in opportunity myth when we had classrooms included in that study, many of them, and I'm not talking about a few that had strong curriculum in place and they did not you know, consistently outperform other folks across these resources. So I think the opportunity myth does give you this sort of um, bolder and more rich view of what, uh, what the students, what influences the students daily experience and achievement. And it, it just goes beyond the quality assignments that they're getting, which are derived from presumably a high quality curriculum. Uh, And we see this too. I mean, Steiner Mm -hmm. and Kane co-authored a sort of a response to Kane's study that, that said that curriculum is not a silver bullet and said, you know, don't give up on curriculum reform. I'm certainly not saying that, but there, there is more to this picture than just invite you to my house for dinner and um, I serve you some food. You're likely to take a bite before you add any salt to it, right? So teachers have this instinct, this sort of tinkering instinct to um, add a lot of salt, right? To start, start with the salt, right? <laughs> and so um, mm-hmm. we try to be really clear, like, you know, in year one, and I, and, I, and, I'm, and I say year one specifically, not unit one, not lesson one, not month one, but in year one, we're going to try this, this plate of food and we're not going to add any salt. You know, in the summer, next spring, we can talk about salt, but right now we're going to try it because you can't see what March is going to look like when you start in September. And if you start adding salt in October, well, the meal in March might be all off. So the analogy kind of gets lost there, but you see my point. Um, but, but all that yeah. to say this vision piece, I think is something that we don't always talk about, but it's just critical for grounding the curriculum as a lever to achieve the vision rather than an end in and of itself. I'm wondering if you guys, um, because you you are actually on the ground doing some of this work, if you've, um, I guess what I'm asking is, have you actually like, do you have any tips or things that have worked to share to for this curriculum-based PD to happen that really make a difference? Because I think sometimes, um, at least in my experience, you know, we the PD we have is based on our curriculum, but we still have people walk away and say, "Yeah, but I want to teach it the way I I want to teach the way I always do." Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess I'm just wondering if you've like seen anything that really has not just changed people's minds, but has helped people see the why behind yeah. the curriculum. I think Reagan and I are both really excited to answer this question yes. <laughs> because we are both, you know, we are both eternal optimists and very hopeful mm-hmm. uh, as I think you have to be to really have a, a longstanding career in, in the field that we've chosen. Um, and she can speak to it even more than I can, but I will say That one change management idea, um, and I'm glad you asked this question, Melissa, because I know it's work that you're digging into a bit, is this idea of learning to improve, right? And and the Carnegie Mm -hmm. Foundation does a lot of this work. And and the idea there is to start small with some kind of maybe a pilot or a small group of schools and really to, you know, learn fast. Like you're implementing slower, as in you're doing it on a smaller scale, but you're doing it really purposefully to try to learn a lot from that pilot. Like what are the key pieces? What are the key moves? Right. Mm -hmm. And really creating some champions and then trying to scale that work up so that people can learn from those champions. And, And when I think of champions, I actually think of 
Katie and Kier, who were on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My son actually goes to Katie's school. I'm a super fan of all of the teachers at that school and the <laughs> leadership. Uh, I can't say enough good things about them and how inspiring they are. But one of the things that I see in, in that particular school is this incredible commitment to like, uh, just what Reagan said, like, we're not going to put salt on it at first. Like, we're, we're going to really try this out. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to get better at implementation. And then we're going to try to share and spread that with, with others in our network, with others in our district, and really trying to share that learning with other educators, as, as Katie and Kier are doing across the country. Um, and so, I mean, I think the thing that's hard about a pilot uh, and, and that's something that I'm doing on, on one of my contracts right now that I'm really excited about. Um, one thing that's hard about it is, you know, as you learn about the equity that's involved, like, what do you do for all the kids who aren't involved in the pilot in the meantime? And that's a tough one to right. grapple with. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's something that makes a lot of, um, a lot of leaders uncomfortable and, and may want them to, you know, stay away from a pilot. But I would say if you look at it as a long-term investment in the long-term success of, of what students are going to achieve from pre-K to 12, and, and we've talked about how this is, you know, a, a vertical shift. It's not just about what they get at one grade. It's about their experience across grade levels. Um, I think my, my tip to leaders would be think about a pilot, like read Learning to Improve and think about, you know, elements of that approach that could apply to your work because we've seen some positive things happen when folks have taken that on. Yeah, that's great, Kristen. And I think like, you know, here in Baltimore, we're way past that stage. (laughs) Everyone is already (laughs) implementing wit and wisdom, but I still think what you said applies, right? That like, I think oftentimes we look at someone like a Kier, I'm going to use him as an example, like as an outlier, like he's doing so well, but that's like he, some other teachers might say, well, that's just, he's different, right? right? Somehow he's making it work. Um, Instead of, like you said, like, what is he doing that's making it work so well? You know, what is he doing that if you saw his tweet the other day in module zero, he showed a revision of writing from one student that was amazing. (laughs) And this is a week into the school year. You know, what is, what are the moves he's making to make this curriculum work that well? And there are so many things that we can learn from him and so many other teachers, not just him, but so many teachers in Baltimore for what is making it work that we can. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things I think that strikes me about, you know, both Katie and Kier, and obviously we're using them as symbols of all, or symbolically of all of our Baltimore teachers. (laughs) Um, But I feel like the thing that I think Reagan, you spoke about, or maybe it was Kristen, you're both speaking about (laughs) it um, in the way of that uh, mindset and having that Mm -hmm. open mindset to change. So that change mindset, um, being willing to jump into something new and to explore. Um, What you had mentioned, Kristen, about creating champions for this work to bring it to a larger scale. One question that I have um, is that when, what do you do when champions run into roadblocks? Because I just feel like you know, there's always going to be people, Melissa and I have talked about this before, that have been teaching for 20, 30 years and now are asked to change their craft, right? They're not meant to be creators. They're, we're asking them to be implementers. Um, and I always think like old habits die hard. Uh It's really hard to change. Um, 
you know, in any facet of life, but especially in a career where you are feeling successful, feeling committed, feeling like it's your life, right? Teachers, teachers aren't just teachers because they kind of like their job. Teachers are committed people who like love and respect children so much. Um, So what happens when champions run into roadblocks and maybe some negativity or road bumps? Um, Mm -hmm. What, what do we do? Yeah, we, I mean, we've faced this a little bit. We, I work with some districts across the state of Tennessee that are in a network together. And um, Robin McClellan, Dr. McClellan, is actually one of our, our partners in that work. And she's another one of the, the leaders there on the Curriculum Matters um, campaign. I stalk uh, her, her on Twitter. Oh, my God. Her tweets her. are just the best. She's, a, she's great. Robin, I love yes. hold on, hold on. Robin, if you are listening... <laughs> Please, this is Lori. Please come on our podcast. You could podcast with Janice uh, Lane. We could get her back on. You can podcast on your own with other Curriculum Matters friends. I'm speaking directly to Robin <laughs> McClellan right now. We'll um, get Reagan back on. Reagan, you can come on. Reagan, you have to send her the podcast. I will. Podcast. Don't worry. It's done. It's done. <laughs> I'm like, hold up. I love her on Twitter. So I, I bring her up because I think she was really deliberate from the beginning of her district's pilot around investment. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, they did sort of, you know, they had this ideal situation. They had some sort of room to play, so to speak, where they could roll this out a little more slowly, as Kristen advised. Um, and so she picked teachers to, or teachers somehow self-selected to become these these pilot teachers. And she calls them the game changers and she treats them with just sort of like the utmost um, honor, especially in the early years of the of the work. And by now they've scaled, to be clear, um, across the district. But um, she really focused on that and it, it did a lot, I think. And, and I think what, what they would say, and we, we should get one of them on, frankly, um, what they would yeah. say is that, yeah, of course there are roadblocks, but they really felt like they had a, a network of other teachers who were there to grapple with them. And they had district and school leaders who were supportive. And I can't speak enough to sort of that as a key feature of the success of implementation, which is what I call that vertical spine. Um, it, do we have people who know and believe in this at all, every level of the system, the classroom, the school, the district, are they all normed on what we're talking about um, and what we're looking for and what is that vision of literacy and that the curriculum is a means to an end and end in itself and all these things we've been talking about, you really have to get that, that alignment across the system um, for it to work. And I think Robin's a great example of someone who did that really intentionally and got folks invested. Um, we also have, and I can happy to share them with you afterwards, we have um, some great teacher spotlights where we found sort of bright spot teachers who were highly successful in their implementation and also very invested or had become very invested and were not always invested from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. And we profiled them and said, what, what do you do? How, how do you do this? Well, you know, what has been key to your practice here? What has made you change? You went from mostly, frankly, a balanced literacy model or you were making up your own stuff the, you know, the week before to a rigorous curriculum, whether it's CKLA or Wit and Wisdom or EL, and we have all three of those operating across Tennessee. Um, and they've had some, they had some really good you know, and informative um, approaches to that work that I think other people can learn from. So I'm happy to share those as well with you all. That would be amazing. Yeah. And I love the idea of talking directly to some of those game changers. I think that that's a really... Mm-hmm. cool idea um, to hear their perspective. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that. Kristen, do you want to add? Yeah. I mean, Reagan covered a lot of what's so important about this. I think the only thing that I would add to it, one thing that I've been really inspired by 
is just the leadership that has to happen here is that we have to create psychological safety for our teachers, right? So this is really emotional work because what we're essentially doing is saying, you know, this is the approach that you've taken in the past. Think about who benefited from that approach, (laughs) right? This is the approach that we're asking you to take now. Here's how it's different. Think about who benefits from this approach. And hopefully it's all kids. But part of that is acknowledging that in the old approach, there were certain kids who were getting left out, right? Like there were students who we weren't serving their needs as well as we could have been. It wasn't that we were doing, weren't doing anything right for them, but there were, there were holes there, right? And so that's really emotional because as we all just said, you know, teachers go into teaching because they love kids. They love their students. So it's really difficult to acknowledge that some of the practices that we've been using may not have served all of our kids. It's difficult for me. I think about the things I, it's, I think about it when I think back on my teaching days, I think about it with my coaching days and things that I asked Mm -hmm. teachers to do. Right. So I can speak to this on a personal level because it's emotional. And so One of the things that's been wonderful for me in being at TNTP is that we have created psychological safety among one another um, in our organization, those of us doing this work. And we really encourage leaders in the schools and districts that we're partnering with to think about how they can create that as well. Because when stumbling blocks happen, as you said, when hurdles get in the way, when there's not safety, you know, sometimes we want to revert back to old habits. And so when there is safety, we, we have the comfort of saying, you know what, I'm struggling right now. What do I do? Who can support me? And, and what's the path forward? So that's some of the, you know, adaptive change that we're speaking to. Yeah, I would totally just to, to echo that. I think one of the things that you have to be aware of as you implement this work and move forward is that this, this, you have to go slow to go fast and this takes time. So there are going to be teachers who don't buy in or, or jump on ever. I mean, that is a reality. And, and you know, sometimes people mm-hmm. have to make tough decisions there. And there will be teachers who take longer. And I think part of what we have to realize is that you have to get teachers to a place where they are, A, safe and, um, you know, not feeling attacked in any way or, or evaluated about it, but that they can have this sort of cognitive dissonance uh, to, to change their, their daily behavior and to change how they're approaching you know, for probably 50%, if not more of their job um, in the, as a literacy teacher. And I think it's that cognitive dissonance that makes this work inherently adaptive and not just technical. And I think there is often a inclination in districts to um, perceive this as a technical thing, you know, give them the materials, give them the training on where they find the pieces of the materials and then send them on their way. And if we don't realize that you know, I, I call it the literacy baggage that, you know, teachers come with a lot of literacy baggage. And if you don't get them to see the dissonance between what you're asking them to do and what's in their literacy baggage, you're never going to get them to really make that the depth of change. And I think in conjunction with that, I would say you have to monitor what's happening in classrooms. You have to, and I don't mean that in a checklisty gotcha kind of way. I mean that in a supportive way, we have to get underneath, you know, what's actually happening in classrooms and the degree to which we're seeing change and, um, and, and, and help people to make the changes. Uh, not, are you on page seven on Tuesday? That's where you're supposed to be. But, but are you asking text-dependent questions? Well, I wrote down the text-dependent questions you're asking. Let's look at them together. Let's talk about when John Lee said this. How did you respond? Like, let's get into the depth of what we're talking about. And that goes back to that vision, right? That's not in the curriculum, per se. The questions are, but how you responded isn't. That's, 
that's the work. That's the intellectual work of a teacher right there. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> yeah. We, and what's so interesting is in, um, in our podcast with Liz Manolis, uh, episode 12, if you're listening, um, she shared a, a, a little anecdote about a district that implemented wit and wisdom curriculum that for a whole year before they implemented did all of the pre-work on the research and the why. Mm-hmm. And they, they called it like plowing the field to get ready for yeah. implementation. And I think that, I mean, if you have the luxury of that time, it's amazing. Um, yeah. amazing because the, you know, just that adaptive change piece was prime. Yes. Yeah. So just to give you a, an example of this, this is some work that I'm doing in Texas right now with a district that I'm, I'm super excited about. And in working with their superintendent and CAO, that was, you know, exactly our approach that we took. We said, we're going to take a two prong approach. So we are piloting high quality, all green um, curriculum in a network of schools and learning. And we are also, we also assembled what their CAO calls a a literacy task force. And that's a group of people, uh, assistant superintendents, principals, um, some teacher leaders. And what we're doing is we're spending about five months just learning research. So from July until October, we are meeting monthly and diving into what does the research tell us about instruction for all kids? And we're covering topics like systematic phonics, and we're, we're talking about the role of knowledge in comprehension so that when we build that really strong literacy vision that Reagan spoke to in, uh, in, in the first part of the new year, we can make sure that that vision is really well aligned to research. While at the same time, we're also seeing what this looks like by piloting some strong curriculum in schools. So it's a strategic approach where you don't have to just pull one lever. You can pull more than one lever. And um, we get excited that we get to partner and do a network with the leaders and the teachers who are on the ground. And you know, one of the reasons why I'm so inspired by this group of people that I'm working with there is, is they're doing what, what honestly, Lori and Melissa, you do on your podcast. They're, they're modeling this level of humility in saying, you know what, we've got some stuff to learn, right? Like, let's learn together. Let's think about the path forward and how we can do better for kids. And I think that humility is sort of like a necessary ingredient in that psychological safety that we spoke to creating. Yeah, I agree. And I think along with that, if you don't have that humility, I think it's hard to get to the place where you realize your old literacy practices weren't working, right? Because most teachers, it's really hard to acknowledge that or to admit it or to mm-hmm. focus on the seven yep. kids who didn't get it from guided reading in first grade, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's hard. I think the, one, the other thing I'd say, which seems so trivial that I hesitate to even mention it, but the number of times I've seen it not said to to in a district during implementation and it's come back to sort of bite them is that you have to be really clear. And this feels like a fidelity thing. So just know that I acknowledge that you have to be really clear. (laughs) Like if we're doing this new set of materials, we are not doing this other thing that we used to do. Right. Right. And again, seems so Mm -hmm. obvious, but what we see so often is that teachers, because the literacy baggage is so heavy, it's hard to let go of whatever, model they they were using or component of balanced literacy yep. and and they'll ask things like well how is this going to fit into my shared reading and i want to say what is shared reading for what to what end you know and it's not yeah. and how does it fit into the vision of literacy it's why all of these components have to kind of work together and sync um and the clarity of expectations is just i can't under underscore enough how important that is yeah preach on yeah. that one i agree <laughs> yeah i think too that comes from what um, you both mentioned before, um, I believe, 
Reagan called it, I was taking notes, the vertical yes. spine. Yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, if the district and the, the leaders, so, and I mean leaders by in every sense yep. of the word, like from a coach at the school to a district coach, to a district leader, to the principal, to the AP, um, are not on the same page, right? If they're, if they have not all shifted in that adaptive change wave mm -hmm. and, you know, if, um, we're implementing this new curriculum, but then there are pockets of folks still doing the old stuff or think, trying to figure out how it fits into the old yep. way. That's not going to work. Right. It has to all move together um, in this big push, this big wave. Um, I love how you said that. If we're doing this new thing, then we're not doing That's it. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in Lori, I had that same thing in my mind, which was that, you know, I could see if, this, if the leadership does not have that right. same vision and understanding that you could have a few different things happen, right? One is like, well, this teacher That's knows right. what they're doing. They've had good scores, good enough scores, so I'll just let them keep doing it. Or you're just trying to like get everyone to do it with fidelity because someone else says that you have to. So I don't really understand why, but I'm telling you, you have yep. to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which are all obviously yeah. not what we and want. It, but I think what you shared was important as well, where you said... Um, that you, you have to be willing, that humility piece, you yeah. have to be willing to accept that what you were doing before, you know, may not have been working. And I, I, I continue to go back to just because it's in, fresh in my brain, um, Emily Hanford's APM mm -hmm. report, most recent one, um, the leader in Bethlehem PA shared that teachers were feeling this immense amount of guilt. Yeah. And the one thing that they adopted, the phrase that they adopted was no better, do better mm -hmm. so that that could relieve the guilt. And I think that that does speak to that safe space that you're creating um, for that change to occur because once they knew better, they're doing better. And it relieves some of the guilt mm -hmm. that, you know, they may have had about teaching kids in a different way and it allows them to accept this new way and to be open to it. Yeah. So I think that that's uh, really, that's what that was making me think of while you were talking. Yeah. About I mean, it. I can't tell you the number of times in a, in a sort of, you know, vision setting or literacy sort of research session, I've said, you know, how many people did X, which is clearly not supported by the, the research. And we spent years, I mean, I spent years training people on X, whatever it is, guided reading, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, Same. Yeah. And we all raise our hands and I say, let's just take a minute. We're all going to, you know, forgive ourselves and we're going to move on and we're going to be in a place where we can listen. And it's, <laughs> it's sort of a mea culpa moment, but it, you know, it's a small thing, but I think you have to, if you don't acknowledge and sort of be that yes. pithy about the, the depth of the change we're talking about, I just think we're never going to get there at any kind of scale. Yeah. yeah. I tell everybody I know to read the book, Know Better, Do Better by Meredith and David Lehman. I love the phrase. Yes. And their book is so accessible, right? Like mm -hmm. it's a quick read for the most part. I think a parent could read it. A teacher could read it. Anyone could read that book and really hear and understand as they so masterfully do, like what, what it has looked like, who's benefited from the old approach, who will mm -hmm. benefit systematic phonics approach, right? To speak to that piece. Like mm -hmm. I, I see this with my own little kindergartner. Um, you know, we've seen the ladder mm -hmm. of reading that like there are some kids who can get by with just a sprinkle of phonics, right? And that's what kind of makes this so confusing is that mm -hmm. a lot of kids get by with just a little phonics. And so they're like, well, it worked mm -hmm. for these kids, right? But like 
it doesn't work for all kids, right? It wouldn't work for my son and his mom is a literacy specialist. Like, right. <laughs> already, that's just not the way his brain works. He's going to need, he's going to need a lot of time to build his phonological awareness to, to understand sounds. And his younger sister might not, she might get by with the sprinkle of phonics, right? Yep. And so we can see this, those of us who are parents, and I always speak about engaging parents because it's so personal for us, but like, it's this piece that we have to acknowledge that like we have to be inclusive of all kids. And so Mm -hmm. that book is a, is a great way of helping folks to understand because it can be confusing, right? Like what we were doing before some kids did benefit from it, but we're, we're looking for a new path forward where all kids uh, benefit. And so I love the title of that book. And I I've made this joke to different people that I've worked with that if I were to write a book, the title of my book would be, we can do hard things. <laughs> and what I mean <laughs> is that we can do hard things. The kids can do hard things and we have to raise expectations for them. And also us as adults, we can do hard things too. Like we can, we can walk away from old practices that don't work for all kids. We can shift our thinking. Like we can do this work. We can forgive ourselves. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's a, a strong reminder to, to be gentle on ourselves because this work that we do is so hard, but it's also so important. Yeah. And I'm wondering too, you're making me think about um, when teachers feel frustration or, or like anger at this new change, Mm -hmm. um, which is a natural feeling. I want to name that. Um, I think that it, it doesn't, I think it gets placed on the materials, right. Or placed on the, we're now having to do this new thing, Mm -hmm. but it may be also wound up in the structure. So that vertical spine that isn't quite vertical, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so can, would you both speak to a little bit about that? Like what does the vertical spine look like for a a successful implementation? Um, What elements like the who, the what, the where, the why, the how, Um, we could probably go on for three more hours. So you don't have to talk about everything in in great detail. Um, but I would just love to hear more about that. Yeah. I mean, Chris, maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of like the district level vision setting stuff. Cause I know you've done a lot of that work, but I, and I can speak a little bit about principles first as often the first frontier, right. Of where the pushback comes or the questions come or the excitement comes. Right. Um, when yeah. teachers are implementing and, and we've done a lot of work, I think over the years an increasing amount of work with principals and in, in schools that are using strong literacy materials and, a lot of it is, I mean, they, ha- they often have literacy baggage too, or, or sometimes no literacy baggage at all because there's no literacy or anything. They just don't have a background in literacy and they're, they're school leaders, which is not atypical. Um, and so a lot of this is yes. building their content knowledge um, in the cases where they don't have it, shifting their perspective in, case, in the case where they may have taught in a really different way when they were teachers. Um, and we do that again, and we ground it in this vision. So it's not per se about the materials. We refer to the materials as the vehicle for that vision, but we are not getting in the weeds of, you know, Tuesdays should be this, look this way and be on this page and the pacing guide is off and that kind of thing. Right. And so I think that um, mm-hmm. a lot of that we've done through just, I mean, honestly, like a sort of knowledge, interactive knowledge building sessions, but then a lot of it is walkthroughs and like, let's get into classrooms. Let's use the corrections, which are curriculum agnostic, but, you know, content specific. 
Um, let's use those to, to analyze what's happening in classrooms. Let's talk about the text-dependent questions. Let's talk about the quality of the text. Let's read the text right now and, and talk about how we would have done this differently or you know, what the teacher missed by asking this question and not that question. Let's pull up the curriculum and see what questions the curriculum suggested the teacher ask and see what choices they made. Let's talk about why they made those choices. What questions would you ask the teacher as a follow-up? You know, those kinds of conversations um, have started to really build the skill and to get the buy-in from leaders so that when they get the excitement, they can, you know, echo it back. And when they get the pushback, they actually have a response. Yeah. And I would say at the district level, you know, it's not that different than what Reagan articulated, right? Like, <laughs> um, it's the same thing, but we're talking about leaders now, right? And so I think, you know, at the start of it, it's, you know, modeling that you allow that space for learning, right? Like allow yourself some time to be a learner, even if you've been in education for a long time and you're working as, you know, at the district level or at, at, in a CMO leading a group of schools, allow yourself to be a learner first. And I would say, don't be afraid to ask for help, right? Like, don't be afraid to ask people to be partners in the work with you. Like I always say about teachers, you know, we, we overestimate the amount of time that they have. Like they are not only teaching, but they're also like <laughs> wiping noses and putting band-aids on boo-boos and like giving yeah. hugs and being emotional support for kids. And it's the same thing for district leaders. Like they are fielding phone calls from board members and yeah. <laughs> engaging in community events. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you have to ask for a lifeline and it's okay to say, Hey, you know, somebody who used to do this really well, um, Sean Conley, who's the former CAO in, in Baltimore City Schools, he's in Philadelphia now doing great work. Hi, Sean, if you're listening. Um, I have to work we'll like, send this, Kristen, we'll send this to him. I don't know, like, <laughs> mentioning him. He might send me a text. Like, um, you know, when he was my executive director and I was working, doing some leadership work with him, one of the things he did really well is he'd say, I need you to take the lead on learning this, Kristen. Like, I need you to read every article about this and know it and then articulate it to me because he was delegating his time, right? Because he had a lot of things that he had to do. And so I think, you know, be a learner, ask for lifelines, partner with other people. Nobody is the ultimate expert, but everybody can be a lead learner on something. Um, and then, you know, being, being a, a leader in a district or on a CMO or at a state level can be a lonely job, right? Yeah. Like maybe one of you in your district. So I think, <laughs> one of the networks that are emerging nationally, like Chiefs for Change is a great one. Um, there's a lot more that we could list. Like these, the time and space that you take away from your day-to-day -day work to go connect with other superintendents, assistant superintendents, principals, et cetera. Like yeah. make yourself part of a, a network improvement community because you learn a lot from people and it's okay to ask for help. You don't have to know everything and do it all completely on your own. Yeah. And it's actually, it's such a great point, Kristen, because we've seen this really clearly in Tennessee. So we had a group of originally nine districts that were working on literacy over the last several years and implementing um, strong materials. They started K2 and have sort of expanded at this point to, to K5 for the most part. And about a year and a half or two years in, we added a few districts with much lighter touch supports. They weren't getting the same sort of quantity of support that, that their um, predecessors were. Uh, but they used a guidebook that TNTP had put together around how to sort of execute on this work. And I think what we found was actually one of the more helpful things they got was a mentor district, a district that had that was a year or two ahead of where they were in implementing curriculum and making these changes and sort of enacting a, a really clear and research-based vision for literacy. And we saw, you know, really strong results with these lighter 
um, touch uh, folks in part because they learn so much from their colleagues and uh, this learning from other districts, you're right. It's such, it can be such a lonely job. Just like, I mean, we used to talk all the time about how teaching, you know, you close your door and you're by yourself, which is true. But I think in the last <laughs> couple of decades, or at least the last decade, we've really increased sort of the focus on collaboration and things like that. And I'm not sure that that's entirely accurate anymore, but I think that the curriculum, you know, sort of renaissance here has actually pushed the envelope a little bit with districts too, in terms of collaboration. And so one of the really concrete outcomes we saw is that the growth in teacher um, change vis-a-vis the IPG um, in literacy in these districts that, that had a mentor district and had some had a guidebook for how to, to do this work, they actually grew faster than our original districts had in their first year. Um, oh, wow. Which, I mean, le- this is leading indicators, but still, it's, it's, it speaks to just sort of the collaboration and the power there. Yeah, and worth noting that Natalie Wexler mentions it in the epilogue of her book. So we were really yes. excited. We've <laughs> <laughs> been talking about his mention um, because, you know, it, it's hard to find the bright spots sometimes. Like so people mm-hmm. say, find the bright spots, like that's a good change management approach. But the work is so big, it can be hard to find. So by doing these things and partnering, like we can be each other's bright spots. Like we, we can do this together. Yes. That's awesome. So I feel like you guys gave so much great <laughs> advice. We usually ask people to wrap up by giving a single piece of advice. Um, but is there any? I know. I'm like, you already gave like so much advice. Um, could, but if there was one last on thing. One last thing that you all wanted to share for a district, school, or anyone that's starting to implement new curriculum. Um, yeah, I think the one thing I would say that is probably a good closing comment, actually, is that, you know, you it, this work takes time. Um, and so it's easy to sort of give up because you don't feel like you're getting the results. If you're taking a knowledge building approach, it's not instantaneous. Um, and you also can get sort of uh, distracted by strong results coming early and sort of shift your focus. But I think my overall advice is you just really can't take your foot off the gas on this. You have to continue to prioritize this work. I think this is the foundation of what we're asking um, children to do and the opportunity gap. And so if you're going to do literacy, uh, if you're going to do literacy implementation, just double down and, and don't take your foot off the gas. Yeah. I mean, I think my closing thought in all of this is just that like, you know, I think it's something that I've been thinking about a little bit lately. And um, I follow our CEO from TNTP on Twitter, and he tweets about it sometimes, and I'm always inspired by it. Um, that, you know, I think a lot of the conversation in ed reform right now, you know, and you hear it at the political debates like we heard last night, um, you know, we hear talk about vouchers and charters versus traditional schools. And, um you know, teacher evaluation and and test scores and and are we doing too much testing? And all of those things are really important to talk about because they're important for equity for our kids. But I would also say that there are things that we can do right now that don't involve any outside factors that really just involve what we do for kids in the classroom, right? Like the way that we approach (laughs) instruction. Um, And so, you know, I think what's important about the opportunity myth is that for years, we have addressed the disparities between lower and higher income students in this country as an achievement gap. And that language really puts the ownership on the kids, right? Like it's their achievement gap, right? But when we Mm -hmm. shift our language and use the words that, that Reagan just used and we say, 
this is an opportunity gap, not just in terms of the funding that our kids get and the kinds of quality that they get, right? But in terms of like the kinds of instructional materials, the kinds of practices that we put in front of kids, like it is not an achievement gap if we have never given them difficult texts and tasks to do before they get to college. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, before they yep. get to their careers or before they join the military. I mean, military texts are some of the most complicated technical texts you'll ever read, right? So like we want our kids to have every opportunity when they finish their uh, pre-K to 12 education. And so if we have not put the kinds of work in front of them and use the kinds of instructional approaches that cognitive scientists have researched and told us work before they leave, then it's not an achievement gap. It's an opportunity gap and it's on us. And it's not just on classroom teachers. It's not just on parents. It's not just on leaders. It's on all of us. It's a systems issue, right? And so I would say if there's one closing closing thought, stop thinking about the disparity as an achievement gap and start thinking about it as an opportunity gap and thinking about ways that you can chip away at that gap and also be kind to yourself in the process. Awesome. You guys have given everybody so much to think about. <laughs> and I feel like we could probably have five more podcasts with you guys. I think we should have a maybe part more. two because I would love to hear some updates after, you know, maybe yes. mid year. Check yeah. in again. Love it. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I'm so grateful that that you both came on and, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Kristen and Reagan. It has been so amazing to get to know you and your work with TNTP and Melissa and I are just thrilled that you both took an hour out of your day to talk to us. Thank <laughs> you so, so much for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. We really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you guys. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up. So if you're listening to this podcast and you loved what you heard, please make sure you give us a five-star review, leave us some amazing feedback and keep listening. 